Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that explores the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. I am Bert Dreher, Chairman of the Department of Diagnostic, Molecular, and Interventional Radiology at the Mount Sinai Medical Center and the Icon School of Medicine, as well as a past president of the Radiologic Society of North America. I cordially invite you to sit back and relax as we journey through chest and cardiac imaging through the lens of the field's leading experts. And now, from the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, New York, it is my pleasure to introduce your hosts, Adam Bernheim and Michael Charlie. Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging. I am Adam Bernheim, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Chung. We're really excited to have you with us today because we have a terrific interview lined up with Dr. Teresa McLeod in just a moment. How are you today, Mike? How's your early spring treating you? Hi, Adam. I'm doing great. Uh, the weather's getting nicer. The birds are chirping. I think it's uh, perfect running weather, actually, in New York. So the park is filled with joggers. You know, I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and we work on the Upper East Side. So my daily commute to work is a walk through Central Park, literally, which is beautiful. And uh, this time of year, I can start to see the very, very beginnings of tree and bud on the trees in Central Park. So it's, a, it's always a nice thing. Mm. Unfortunately, I have to stick to the underground. It, it would be a long walk from the financial district for me. But um, I must say that I am enlightened to see a lot of ground glass opacity on the subway windows as I take uh, the four or five train every morning. It's um, very tough to see outside those dirty windows. That's great, Mike. Always thinking like a thoracic radiologist. Before we start with today's interview, we just wanted to let our listeners know that there are many ways of reaching us. Any of the listeners out there can find us and subscribe for free uh, to our cardiothoracic imaging podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Buzzsprout, and Stitcher. If any of our uh, listeners have any uh, questions or comments, is there a way for them to reach us? Sure. So we also have a, a new email account set up. It's under cardiothoracic imaging podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. In addition, I just want to bring attention to one exciting unrelated event that's coming next month here in New York City. For any of our listeners that happen to be in the New York area on May 15th, the Cardiothoracic Imaging Society of New York, CISNI, which is a newly formed organization made up of institutions throughout the New York City area that come together to have events featuring uh, case presentations and lectures of chest and cardiac imagers. We are planning an event at Cornell on the Upper East Side on May 15th, where we're looking forward to having a couple of speakers, including uh, Dr. George Ann McInnes, a professor of chest radiology at NYU, as well as Dr. James Min, a professor of cardiac imaging at Cornell, who's going to be giving a talk on AI and machine learning and cardiovascular imaging, as well as a visiting lecture by Dr. Gotham Reddy from the University of Washington. So we're excited for this event, and uh, any New Yorkers that are listening are certainly welcome to come. And in addition, uh, it's a very welcoming crowd, so even if there are uh, people from out of town who happen to be in New York on that evening and you'd like to join us, you're certainly welcome to. There'll be a free uh, a dinner and cocktails as well. 
on that Wednesday, May 15th, if anyone's out there who's listening and wants to join us or who will be in the New York area, feel free to email us at cardiothoracicimagingpodcast at gmail.com and we'll send you the evite so you can attend. And now it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Teresa McLeod from the Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. McLeod is a professor at Harvard Medical School and has been at the Massachusetts General Hospital since 1976. She has served as president of the Radiological Society of North America, the American Rentgen Ray Society, and the Society of Thoracic Radiology, and has also earned gold medals from all three of those organizations. She has more than 200 publications in her career, and while I'd like to go through her full CV, I think it's probably longer than War and Peace. So without further ado, I would just like to introduce Dr. Teresa McLeod, and thank you very much for your time today. Well, first of all, I want to thank you and thank Dr. Dreyer uh, as well for this inviting me to give this interview, so I'm very appreciative. Maybe we'll start uh, just by learning a little bit about your background, where you're from, how you came to go into medicine and become a thoracic radiologist. Hmm. Well, I was born in Boston, uh, grew up in Boston, went to Boston College, uh, which was a local school, a Jesuit school. Um, but I uh, had a special relationship, I think, with our family doctor who took care of the family, and I always admired him, and I would go to his office, and sometimes I would ask if I could watch him with patients and so forth that the patients would allow. So somehow I was attracted to medicine from an early age. There were no other members of the family that uh, were in the medical field. We were more in education and teaching, which has become one of my interests as well during my career. And uh, then I decided to apply for medical school. There was a wonderful I actually Jesuit priest who was the advisor to the pre-med students at Boston College, and he was very encouraging to me. And uh, considering it was a time when very few women were in the medical field and the school was mostly male at that time as well, um, I was very appreciative of all of his efforts. Uh, and then I went on to uh, McGill University Medical School in Montreal and completed my medical school there. What is it that drew you to uh, chest radiology? Well, as usual, it's often a mentor or or someone who's a great teacher. And I think originally I was more interested in specializing in internal medicine. And then I took an elective in radiology. And the chair of the department, Robert Fraser, was a renowned chest radiologist. And he was such a dynamic teacher and so enthusiastic about radiology in general and thoracic radiology in particular that I decided, based on the experience of that elective and some of the teaching of other members of that department, to pursue a career in radiology. I had a couple of friends also that were close friends that had decided on the same career path, and we were very supportive of each other when we we entered uh, the training in chest radiology. In Canada, it was a four-year program, uh, unlike the U.S. at the time, where it was only three years, so we were able uh, to spend more time in depth, and we spent more time actually learning some pathology as well with the four-month elective in pathology. Could you talk a little bit about any of your other early mentors um, within the field of chest radiology as you started to get more involved? Yes. Um, well, first of all, I'll go back to Dr. Fraser. He was very supportive when I said that I was interested in chest radiology. 
he knew I was an American and I wanted to go back to the U.S. And we talked about possible opportunities. And uh, he was the type of chair that would get on the phone, and he felt he knew everybody in just radiology, and he could give a verbal as well as a written recommendation, and he did that. So I then went to Yale to do a fellowship in thoracic radiology. It was a time of transition in that department. Richard Greenspan, who was a very renowned chest radiologist, uh, who at the time was a professor at UCSF, was moving to New Haven to become the chair of the Department of Radiology there. And his field was uh, just radiology, and he recruited a number of excellent people to come and form the divisions. So I benefited from people that may not be known to the younger generation, but all of whom became departmental chairs. It was Charles Putnam uh, uh, from Duke and uh, Carl Raven, who eventually went to Duke and became the chair there as well. So it was a very dynamic group of chess radiologists. And I must say that I think it's a benefit to train at more than one institution. The approaches are different. Often the patient mix is different, the diseases that you see, the method of teaching. And it was uh, an interesting and very uh, educational experience for me to have spent three years at Yale. I did the fellowship there, and I stayed on the staff. And then the opportunity came up for a position at the Massachusetts General Hospital, which, of course, was home. It was Boston. And then I moved there in 76. Uh, as someone who's really reached the pinnacle in our field, uh, starting from that generation, I would imagine it was very uncommon to see a female radiologist, even in the reading rooms or uh, even within residency programs. Um, what was that like for you, and what kind of obstacles did you face during that time period? Yeah. Well, a couple of things I'll say in introduction. We talked about mentors. When I came to the Mass General Hospital, Juan Tavares, who was sort of the premier recognized uh, neuroradiologist, uh, uh, wrote the major textbooks. He was very supportive of me and I think supportive of women in the department. So that was, that was very, very important. Um, I, you know, the Massachusetts General Hospital is a rather unique place. It's, it's a um, center for civility. Uh, I'm going to ask Adam if he agreed with Absol- that. Absolutely. <laughs> People are are just uh, very collegial. And I think there's a culture of collegiality, not only within the radiology department, but between radiologists and clinicians. But I was talking with Adam earlier, and I said I remember episodes when we'd be in the reading room, and I would kind of be the only woman there. And I would see some well-established MGH clinician come in who didn't know me, and kind of look around, there was nobody else. And you could see the doubt on his face saying, should I ask this woman <laughs> to interpret my radiograph? But never would he say anything. And he came to me and went over the cases and so forth. But um, So we weren't too many people in the department. There were too many women in the department. There were a few at the time, and there were some women residents too, which was helpful. And then just going back to my previous experience, my training in Canada, there were always more women in medicine in Canada than in the United States and in the medical schools. Now, we had about 15 women out of a class of 125, but if you look at many of the schools in the United States, they only had two or three women back in the 1960s. So that created a nice atmosphere where 
there were women who were highly respected clinicians and so forth that that um, were on the faculty at, at McGill. So that that was, I think, an enriching experience for me. In the moment, though, did you could you sense that you were you know being a trailblazer at that time, or were you just in the thick of it? You were just going day by day? Yeah. I don't think I thought of being a trailblazer. Mm. Um, I was used to the fact, perhaps, that, you know, there were fewer women in medicine in general, sure. and you learned kind of to accept that, mm. and uh, you formed friendships with the other women in the department as well as with the men, and uh, it was it was a different time. You know, I think there was perhaps, the certainly the Me Too movement was not operative sure. at that <laughs> time, and I don't think women were as a as aggressive as you know pursuing their careers but um it was a congenial atmosphere and i was able to thrive and i did some things i brought some i wouldn't say techniques but some approaches um remember it was all standard radiography at that time that Mm was different from the way it was operating at the mass general hospital and i think i learned from my from Reggie Green and his experience and his approach, and hopefully we expanded and included some of the, my approaches as well. So it was all, all in all a rich, enriching experience. You started at uh, the MGH in 1976 and still practice there today in 2019, and so much has changed, uh, <laughs> quite a bit has changed in our field over that time. What has it been like to experience the evolution of thoracic radiology over the decades? Well, it's really been amazing for all of radiology. I could never have envisioned the technological advances that occur in radiology when I entered the field. It was all standard radiographs. It was all on film. There was no digital universe at that time. So it's always been exciting, and I I remember describing to somebody uh, who was not in radiology why I liked it, and I said, well, you know, it's like every Christmas you get a new toy, which was essentially <laughs> it was either an advance CT or there was ever there were always challenges, and you always had to keep up and learn um, the the technical aspects as well as learning new interpreter skills, and we would all gather around and learn together when CT first came on the horizon, uh, and we learned from each other. There really weren't textbooks available at that time, so it was a very exciting up here and I couldn't as I say I could never have predicted just where we come over such a field and it's also interesting to see um, the people uh, the medical students who are interested in radiology um, a lot of them like imaging Uh, they feel uh, they contribute a lot of course to diagnosis uh, and somewhat to management of patients but we attract a subset that we didn't attract 10 years ago. We have more and more individuals, um, medical students, who have undergraduate degrees in biomedical engineering or computer science. And it's a subset of the group. It isn't entirely composed of people with that type of educational background. But it's added a very vital component to, I think, our field and our transition into the future because we're attracting people with such talent. Mm. Yeah, I think um, maybe the Massachusetts General Hospital has a very big Christmas list that gets uh, fulfilled, whereas <laughs> I think Adam and I, both on our Hanukkah and Christmas list, it's a dual energy CT in our ER. Kind of hinting at what, or touching back on what you were talking about with some of the new trainees or medical students who enter our field, um, could you 
talk a bit about what you think has been gained or lost with just radiology training as over the years? And do you think young radiologists, when it comes to even chest radiographs, are as good as they are before? Or does it just not matter as much, maybe? Well, you know, the interpretation of standard chest radiographs is becoming a lost art, I think. And, and there's so much more information available on CT uh, that the fine points of interpretation uh, have perhaps not been emphasized as much as they should. But I tell the residents it's very important for you to, first of all, find the abnormality or you won't order a CT scan. That's very important. So one is discovery, you know, do you discover the... And then trying to frame it uh, into what type of abnormality am I dealing with so that you order the appropriate studies. So And, and, and uh, you know, I can't can't argue that uh, it's, it's a lost art, but I enjoy, especially with the medical students, I spend time on, on interpretation of standard radiographs, and it's like a puzzle. It's, sure. it's more intuitive in many ways, but mm-hmm. it's a challenge, and they, they actually enjoy it. <laughs> when you look at a chest radiograph, do you have a specific approach? You mentioned intuition is a big part of it. Do you also rely on a dedicated search pattern, or is it more experience and intuition? I think it's more experienced intuition. I always try to discipline myself after I uh, go through the phase of deciding whether the radiograph is normal or abnormal or what the abnormality is to then try to do the search pattern so I don't miss other findings. So I, I try to discipline myself. But a lot of it just comes from experience and you just uh, are a little bit more intuitive and, and perhaps quicker to recognize abnormalities and the significance of their meaning. But I would like to emphasize that it's always important to have a search pattern to make sure you look at the bones and you look at the chest wall and so forth. Then mm-hmm. you just have to be disciplined with yourself. You've also served as the vice chair of education uh, for uh, the Massachusetts General Hospital and also program director for the residents, and you've been active in education and medical education for even medical students. Um, Can you share some of your experiences in education over the years? Has it been very rewarding for you, or was it something you were drawn to right from the start? Mm -hmm. I think I was drawn to it right from the start. I come from a family where there have been many teachers. My father was a a professor, and I had an aunt who was an art teacher, and uh, I've always enjoyed education, and it's extremely important, of course. It's an investment in our future as a specialty. Um, I've seen educational methodology change tremendously. Um, I think there is now an important emphasis on how adults learn, which is different from how children learn. Children are told what they have to study, and it's Mm -hmm. a pedagogical approach. And often adults have a better grasp of what they need to learn, and they make their own choices. Uh, I've seen this evolution in educational methodology and radiology and other medical sciences, which is very exciting. It's very much interactive, um, audience response systems, um, um, different uh, technological developments, whether it's poll everywhere, allow allow whole audiences respond, and to see their results plotted on a histogram so they can determine whether their response was similar to other people and whether it was right. The uh, residents and students love this. They Mm -hmm. want to be part of the action. They want to be interactive. There is a technique called the reverse classroom where, you know, the students read the material first 
and then you question about it or showcases and mm-hmm. see whether they've grasped all the principles. So I think this is exciting in medicine and is well adapted to radiology and I think has made education more challenging but also a lot more fun, f- mm-hmm. not only for the students. It takes more time, but also for the teacher as well. So, And there's a tremendous sense of um, uh, reward or satisfaction to educate people and then see them do well in their careers. You know, it's building for the future of radiology. Mm -hmm. Dr. McLeod, you've served as president for the RSNA, American Rentgen Ray, and the Society of Thoracic Radiology. How would you compare and contrast the role of president in those organizations, and particularly the RSNA, which is so enormous, I believe it's the largest medical conference in the world. What was it like to be the president of the RSNA? (laughs) Well, just as a little bit of background, how did I get involved in so many organizations? Why did I do it? Uh, And I remember, actually, a couple of days ago, we had a celebration, the 100th anniversary of the New England Rankin-Ray Society, which is the oldest regional radiologic society in the United States. And I would go to their meetings, typically on a Friday afternoon. A lot of residents would go, but I would go as a junior staff, too. And they had a very nice program once a month. And then someone came to me and said, you come to these meetings. Would you like to become more involved? And I said, well, what do you have in mind? And, well, would you like to serve maybe as an officer and so forth? So, and I thought this this would be a wonderful opportunity. I'd like to learn more about uh, organizational radiology. Hopefully I might have something to contribute by seeing societies like this thrive and continue to have excellent educational programs. And that was the beginning. (laughs) And then uh, WestTR was interesting because I was an officer during the 80s. And it was really at the time when subspecialization was coming into its own. Certainly neuroradiology, nuclear medicine, what we call IR now, which was more in geography back in those days, were considered as subspecialty areas. People trained with fellowships. But everybody could read a chest radiograph or an abdominal plane film or do ultrasound or whatever. So uh, the attitudes were changing, and people were beginning to subspecialize. And I think the question in, f- in the early development of STR was, would this be a success? Are there enough people specializing in chest radiology? Or is there enough of an audience that will come to a meeting and think this is important enough that they'll spend three or four days out of their work time to learn more about thoracic radiology? But it was also the time of the technological advances and the advent of cross-sectional imaging and CT, and then the late 80s, MR was coming in and so forth, so people wanted to learn the new techniques. And the you know they have, there were many great leaders in those those first years, but the meetings were a success and they were always fi- you know financially successful. People were interested in chest radiology, and uh, I was very happy and proud to serve. Uh, and I learned a lot about societal organizations and management and. Uh, then putting together a course, you know, it's the structure is still the same in the STR when you know, the year before you're president, you're in charge of the program and all that was involved in, in creating a new and dynamic program. So it provided me with a lot of insight, and I felt, you know, I could contribute 
uh, not you make your own contributions in the department, but you have kind of wider impact through society and what you can do for your field. And uh, I found it very rewarding. What was it like to be the president of RSNA? Oh, now, to be the president of the <laughs> RSNA. Well, the RSNA is a very unique organization. And I think its strengths come from its board. There are only eight members on the board of directors, mm-hmm. and it's easier to manage and to reach consensus on important decisions for the society with a smaller board. For the first six years, you're given a portfolio. Mine was education, so it was very suited to what I was interested in. And the other tremendous strength of the RSNA is its staff. The people work there permanently, and there are there's an executive director, and then there are associate directors. The associate directors, many of whom have PhDs, they're Mm. just uh, amazing people. They have great organizational skills. great insight they come to the board meetings they have important suggestions Mm -hmm. to give us and so forth so the strength of the staff is amazing and the resources rsna is blessed because of the technical exhibition and that provides a lot of financial resources and they reinvest that in their r&e foundation with their scholarships and grants and in all the programs that the rsna produces so it's reinvested back in the organization and and in education and the pursuit of science and radiology so what was it like to be president well actually in your sixth year you become chairman of the board and that's the person who really runs the rsna so that is probably the biggest job but with the strength of the board and the and uh, the staff expertise it's a lot of work but it is extremely rewarding and usually very successful when you become president your major um uh, assignment or your major uh, um contribution is really to run that meeting on um, mm. the uh, the annual meeting and you become the international ambassador as well. You travel as president of the RSNA to many societies, and I think that's very important because they, the, many of the uh, international societies really appreciate the presence of the RSNA, and you have a chance to talk to um, leaders in the field of radiology from all over the world and understand their approaches. That makes me want to ask you, how in the world do you just juggle all these leadership roles with you know your clinical practice at MGH is it just sleep deprivation (laughs) Adam and I can barely cook dinner for ourselves well you know it's very important to have the support of your chair and it was James Thrall at that time and before I accepted the position to join the RSNA board, I went and talked to him. You have to keep it a secret, you know. And I said, what can I want to? And he was just so proud of somebody in the department. Uh, I think Larry Robbins was the only previous one that had been present. He uh, was going to be on the RSNA board. So he was very supportive, and he said, take the time that you mm. want to do. And it was around that time also I decided... Uh, I was division chief in thoracic radiology to step down from that 
because I had so much time, to, so much time committed to RSNA, and mm. uh, that worked out very well. And I continued as a program director, and and obviously it was a staff thoracic radiologist. Right. You know, so you have to make some compromises. Mm. You know, you can't do everything and do it well, but the support of your mentors and the support of your department chair is so extremely important. Yeah. Mm. You've traveled the world and have seen variations in how thoracic radiology is practiced throughout the globe. And I'm just so curious to learn what uh, you've discovered during the course of your travels. And perhaps you might share some experiences or stories from uh, some of the interesting (laughs) places you've had the opportunity to visit. I guess I should be honest and say I love to travel, but that's not the major motivation (laughs) for many of my uh, travels related to radiology. I will say, going back to the RSNA, that when you become chair, you usually have a theme or some area where you want to concentrate the efforts of the RSNA during that year. And mine was international outreach. It was, RSNA was considered, and of course still is, an American or uh, North American organization. But it came increasingly evident that when you looked at the content of the scientific and educational program, the more and more abstracts were coming from Asia and Europe, and it had really become an international meeting. The number of international attendees was growing all the time. Uh, And... I thought that uh, we needed to concentrate. That was the future of RSNA, was as being the major international meeting in the world and so forth. So I put a lot of effort into international outreach. It was fortunate, my previous trial was fortunate because when I started to do this, a lot of people already knew me. I wasn't just known as the chairman of the board of RSNA. They had met me personally before I had taught at their courses. I think it's very important to travel and in any area that or any uh, particular um, I wouldn't say job but any position that you have a profession to have and have an open mind and learn how other people do things and exchange ideas and I think that is extremely enriching I also have made many international friends And some of my trips have been, they're usually for teaching and education and giving lectures on thoracic radiology. And I did quite a few trips to South America, and they, you know, that was always a little bit of a challenge with the, with they had simultaneous translation because not that many people speak English, and you know them. And I remember being on with David Nadich, who many of you may know, and he was this person from New York who spoke very fast, and the the interpreters would would come to him and say, "Doctor Nadich, please, please speak English." But anyway, <laughs> but people were very grateful that you would bring your Mm. expertise and often we were of course in the u.s ahead of the technology and they were expecting to buy their first ct scan or whatever and they've really learned from uh the outreach and the educational programs and i and i learn as well i Mm. think it's so important to exchange ideas and have a very open mind and uh, share information and Try to standardize certain things. You know, you look at the Europeans. Do we standardize our educational system? You know, they don't really have the equivalent of American Board of Radiology. You know, mm-hmm. the individual countries, you know, certify people to to practice radiology, and they've established an exam at the present time, but it isn't compulsory. So, a lot of things we learn from each other, and uh, we. Um, we both grow as a result. So I and I've met and made many friends from many different countries, and it's been a totally enriching experience. 
I think I remember when I was a fellow at that time, you, you had a trip to Mongolia. Yeah. And you've been to a lot of really interesting places or maybe places that a lot of us may not have the opportunity to, to necessarily think about or go to in our lifetimes. Uh, do you have any interesting uh, or anecdotal stories of some Well, I have one very funny anecdotal story. Okay. Um, the mo- I was very um, pleased to be part of... Um, a group of three radiologists um, to go to Mongolia, and this was sponsored by RSNA. They had an international visiting professor program, and it consisted usually of two weeks. You attend the national meeting of the society of the country, and then you go to the different hospitals and teach residents, and often staff would want to show you difficult cases. Um, one of the individuals, um, who uh, was from Ottawa, was a neuroradiologist, and he spent a lot of time because one of the hospitals just gotten an MR scanner and, and uh, helping them with protocols and mm-hmm. so forth, and they were internally grateful. So so Mongolia is a very interesting place because it is in the steppes of Central Asia. It's too dry for agriculture, but there are grasslands, and 50% of the population are living in the same way they did in the era of Genghis Khan. They are nomads, and they basically herd animals, and the terrain is absolutely beautiful. And uh, it was dominated by the Soviet Union for many years, but now they're an independent republic, but trying to find their way, you know, in in a democratic system. So we arrive, or I arrived at the hotel, and the RSNA was very nice, I said, uh, Usually the whole society pays for the hotel, but they didn't have very much money. And I said, you know, I think we want to be safe and we want to be sure that uh, everything is all right. And I said, I will pay for my own hotel. And the RSNA said that they would pay for uh, the other two. And things were very cheap there. We were in the Shangri-La, which is one of these, you know, very expensive chains. I think it was $200 a night. (laughs) Anyway, so it didn't cost the RSNA very much. (laughs) So this is the anecdote, uh, not directly related to radiology, but I arrive at the hotel, and there's a young man who helps me with my luggage, and he spoke excellent English. And so he said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from the United States. He said, oh, yes, I thought so. And he, and he said, well, what city? And I said, Boston, and I don't really expect that someone in Mongolia would know exactly where Boston was. So I had to explain to him that it was a bit north of New York, and it was on the coast. And he interrupted me, and he said, oh, yes, Boston, the curse of the Bambino. (laughs) 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 I I awoke from my jet-like stupor, and I said, my God, how did you? (laughs) And it turned out he had been on exchange program, and he had spent a year in the U.S., and I guess he must have, you know, he went to school there. I think he was very interested in sports, and he learned all about the curse <laughs> of the Bambino. So you never know. I mean, you're sometimes very surprised. I mean, <laughs> the, the world, you know, we really, it really is, um, you know, uh, a global um, society that we have now, and people's and the other thing you don't realize in countries like Mongolia and so forth, I became friends with actually one of the women radiologists, and she came to the World Congress, mm-hmm. and then she spent time in our department. 
And our children, what they know about America is what they see in movies and television mm-hmm. shows. And she had to see all these places that the kids wanted her to take pictures and so forth. So it, it's interesting to learn about. Well, what was radiology like in Mongolia? Mm. Well, difficult. There are two systems. There is private practice, but most of it is, uh, you know, not a single payer, but government sponsored. And they lack resources. Uh, they have problems with training. They only have a two-year program to train radiology residents. And uh, the problem that happens in many third world countries is they do acquire some modern equipment, and sometimes it's donated, Mm -hmm. but they don't have the service contracts. So Mm -hmm. something breaks down, and then they've lost their CT scanner. And because of the bureaucratic system, uh, they can't sign a service contract when they buy the equipment, so then the servicing has to be approved and it can take a month. So a lot of it is is definitely the resources and trying to keep up. I know in some countries, too, they um, wealthy countries like China, they buy all the equipment, but the radiologists haven't been trained mm-hmm. in it because it, when they did their residency, that equipment wasn't available, so they have a whole generation that they have to teach um, that are already practicing. So that's a challenge as well. So so they struggle. The private practice hospital had newer equipment and so forth, but they don't have that many patients because most people can't afford, you know, to pay the fees in a private hospital. So they they do struggle. So you also have honorary memberships in the European Society of Radiology, the Italian Society of Radiology in Medicine, the Spanish Society of Radiology, the list goes on, the Australian and (laughs) New Zealand Society of Radiology, the Chilean Society of Radiology. How did you ever become involved with these groups? Did well, you travel you know, to each of these countries? The honorary membership is like is a recognition often, mm. obviously, for your work. And some are automatic. For example, the European Society of Radiology always confers an honorary membership on the past president of the RSNA, and we do the same for the ESR president. So some of that is, is reciprocal. And often if you go and you've given lectures uh, at p- places, they'll give you an honorary membership because of, you know, your efforts to spend time in their country. Uh, it's been wonderful because I've, I've gotten to meet a lot of people, and it's mm-hmm. just been important to establish those international ties. And, uh, um, uh, you know, I'm just very honored to, to have received it from so many countries. What advice might you give to young radiologists and trainees? Well, I think they have to be convinced, and I think they are convinced that they're entering a very exciting field. I think the technologic advances are going to increase. It's a very rewarding field. I think we're becoming more engaged with patients than we were previously. Um, There are all the new opportunities for in interventional radiology uh, for more direct patient contact in many of our different areas uh, as well. So, uh, And I think the technology, as I said, will continue to advance. I know there are some concerns about the effect of artificial intelligence and data mining. I would hope that it would make um, what we consider burdensome take some of those elements uh, away from our our uh, daily operation. And as a chest radiologist, I spend a fair amount of time measuring nodules and compare <laughs> them with previous. All that could be automated. Mm-hmm. And I think we're all experiencing an, increase, experiencing an increase in volume of cases. 
there aren't enough radiologists to um, sometimes to to really efficiently be able to interpret the cases. We need time for education, administrative duties, many other issues. Um, so, uh, you know, personally, I think it's going to be an exciting time, and I'm not particularly concerned about the effects of AI. We'll see as how that rolls out in the future, but I think it's going to be a benefit to us. And then the out, a lot of the new outreaches, um, I think, are very important most of the medical students now come in with some sort of experience in global health. Right. And I think we have a lot that we can do in that area. More mm. and more is being done. So we actually have established a global health elective for our residents. So so a lot of just very interesting avenues. Uh, we have uh, a program, too. A lot, of, uh, a lot of our new programs are based on ideas that residents have. One is a, an incubator or innovative program for device development, mm-hmm. uh, and some of the residents are involved in that as well. So uh, I think there'll just be more opportunities for expansion as well as for challenges in the future. So asking you to reflect a little bit back, but looking back on your entire career so far, is there anything you would have done differently at all? Well, I think we all look back and we say, oh, I could have done better, <laughs> I could have done different. You know, I considered a chairmanship at one point, and then I, j- you know, felt that I would give up, or I, I couldn't be as dedicated to being tr- just an administrator. And I don't mean that in any, I'm being a chairman of the department, mm-hmm. obviously you have to be someone who has... Um, who is an innovator and has great ideas for the future of radiology and is visionary and so forth. But I just didn't want to spend all my time doing administrative work. And I think if I had entered radiology later or maybe a decade younger and was interested in being a chairman, I would have prepared myself perhaps by getting an MBA or taking Mm. special training, which I didn't have. So I looked at some chairmanships, and then I decided that was not. So I became more involved in societies um, because I wanted to have an impact on radiology, and I feel that I, or at least hope I made contributions uh, through those societies. I'm just so delighted at my career when I look back. It's been a, I I wouldn't say a wild ride, but (laughs) 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 but uh, (laughs) a challenging and very rewarding and satisfactory ride in the career. I'm glad I chose something that was so exciting that was changing all the time. And the only thing I wanted to do was to you know uh, encourage people to come into the field and encourage our our residents and trainees because I think they're they're going to have a still remarkable remarkable future. Yeah, I think we'd just like to thank you just for your impact on the field and your leadership and just your continued mentorship for even people like Adam. Um, he looks up to you so highly, and I can just sense that <laughs> you both are t- <laughs> smiling at each other. But, um, yeah, I mean, you've paved the, the way for our generation um, to, to have the, the field that we have so much that we take for granted is because that foundation was laid by, by by people like yourself, and we're just so grateful that this field of thoracic radiology that we're so fortunate to wake up every day and and mm. have this subspecialty. Um, it's only because luminaries like yourself have paved that way before us. So 
uh, we're, we're extremely appreciative and, and, and truly honored to, to spend some time. Mm. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you for the invitation. I'm very honored and feel humble as well about having the opportunity to have this interview with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that journeys through the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. We hope you have enjoyed listening and look forward to seeing you next time.